Right, let's just, I think uh, we've reached uh, the hour. I know there's often somebody coming in, but I think we've disappointed with the full turnout, which is amazing, and true to turn. It's obviously the mark of Maria, and also the subject, which is uh, important. Uh, I'm not going to give a, a sort of full exposition of Maria's biography, because it's sort of, you know, she's a very interesting character and right, but she manages to blend both a sort of uh, private sector role with being a researcher. So there's inspiration for us all here. We could probably all try this at some stage. Um, Maria's a visiting research fellow um, here at CCW. Um, she has fought long and hard to become a visiting research fellow, and here she is. And I think this, this subject of reflexive control is one of those words, we all, we're all familiar with it, it's banded around quite a bit, it's not very well understood, it's possibly exaggerated, it's possibly just we're looking in the wrong place, and who better than to help us take us through that concept of why it matters? Maria, over to you. Thank you. So thank you all for, for uh, being here. It's really nice to be able to um, give a talk like this in, in person. Uh, it's been quite a while. Uh, and it's really nice to, to do that here at Oxford. I've really enjoyed my time so far up in here since um, October, and it's been fantastic. Um, so this seminar uh, will be about reflexive control, and it will be about what the theory is about, because as Rob uh, mentioned, that's not actually as straightforward as one might uh, hope or think. And interwoven in, in me explaining what this theory is about, I have um, done a bit of uh, cybernetic theory, because cybernetic theory is at the root of what reflexive control theory um, is about. And because the theory is really really rather untheorized in the West. We can't really call it a theory yet. It's more like a, a concept that we want to theorize. Um, I also really want to make sure that we take a little bit of time um, to tell you about what we don't know about this yet. Um, just to make sure that you have a realistic idea of what it is and what it isn't, uh, what we can use it for and what really needs a bit of um, development time. So what is reflexive control and, and, uh, and what is it about? So the theory was first written about in the early 60s uh, in Soviet Russia by mathematical psycho psychologist uh, Vladimir Lefebvre and it, um, it uh, originates, as I said, from um, cybernetic theory. And this cybernetic theory has a lot of overlap with what we more commonly know as um, complex systems theory, which might ring a little bit more of a bell. So, as it says here, uh, reflexive control is um, a means of conveying to a partner or an opponent specifically, um, especially prepared information to incline him to voluntarily make the predetermined decision. And the idea is, in theory, that you can make someone make a decision which they think is in their best interest, whilst actually the situation or information was specifically prepared in such a way that they make the decision that was predetermined by you and is actually probably in your best interest and not in theirs. And if reflexive control would be done well, um, it would mean that actually the, the other party was controlled. wouldn't necessarily mean that they have fallen into, uh, into a trap or that they made a decision that was predetermined by someone else. So at its very core, I would say reflexive control is about changing someone's perceptions about their utility sets. Make them misperceive what they think their best choices are. And so I think it's good to know that both in the West and in the East, where this theory has developed a little bit in, in parallel, 
the nature of, of what reflexive control is and ideas about how it works have been evolving over the years. And actually, a few people who've been researching uh, this agree on what it is exactly and what it is not. There's various definitions. And I actually really like the work of a very recent work by a Finnish analyst from the Finnish uh, Defence Academy, um, Defence University, sorry, Antti Vasara, who uses quite a wide definition, which I'll explain a little bit. And the reason I like this uh, wider definition is because I think it gives us a bit more opportunity to see how we can use this theory and how we can learn from it. Because I think that there's really a lot that we can learn from this theory. So if we look at the literature, both uh, written in Russian and in, and in English, um, there are two types of reflexive control and they're divided into constructive reflexive control and destructive. The constructive reflexive control uh, can be used in slow pace situations where there's time to conduct uh, in-depth analysis uh, of the situation, how the situation is perceived, what the goals are of the other, and in this form of reflexive control, the other will be influenced in such a way that they would voluntarily make a decision. Uh, there's no disruption or anything, it's quite a, it looks like quite an organic process. And indeed here, the decision will be made voluntarily and the decision would serve your interest without necessarily the other people realizing that it serves your interest. So if we very, very carefully, because I'm, I'm really want to be very careful about this, very carefully link this to Western concepts. I would say that this is almost something like a systems theory approach to perception management on steroids <laughs> with a lot of maths. Uh, and I think this sort of reflex control would be more common in longer term situations like diplomacy, uh, economic statecraft, situations that linger on for quite some time. It doesn't require a specific time stamp of which something needs to happen right now. So that's different from destructive reflexive control, which is actually can be used in a fast-paced situations. And this is very much focused on disrupting decision-making processes. And again, to link this carefully to a Western concept, I think this is really quite similar to deception. It will still have the reflexive process involved, but if we think about what it practically means, I think we can compare this to deception. And I think this is, is, this is a lot less subtle. People would normally uh, probably quite quickly realise that, that they've been trapped uh, into a decision that they didn't want to make. So I think this you would more commonly see in situations like either a battlefield, a kinetic situation that wasn't necessarily planned or expected, or for example, something like an unexpected um, negotiation. So according, again, to literature, there are four broad steps that would have to be taken for uh, a reflexive control operation. And the first one would be to build an understanding of the perception of the situation. How does this actor think that the situation looks like? Which, as we'll talk about later, uh, might be very much different from the question of what is the actual situation. We'll, we'll get back to that in a little bit. Step number two would be to determine what the opponent's goals are um, and what these goals should be to meet those of the controlling party. So how can we change the goals of the controlled party to something that we like? And, and 
if you would use more game theoretical terms, we would say, you know, what are these person's utility sets and what do we need these utility sets to be? So step number three would be, as they call it, the introduction of a solution algorithm that requires a little bit of explanation because that, I can imagine, sounds really uh, abstract. So it would, it would be, because of this, the Simon Etting's background of the theory, it would be sort of the algorithmic modelling of behaviour and decision-making. And I think the best way to visualise this is to think of decision-making trees, as you would sometimes see in, um, in game theory. And this would also, this process, would also involve thinking about where the weak spots are in this decision-making process and, and how these weak spots could be exploited. And importantly for reflexive control, this step would also include thinking about the level of reflection that the other party could use. So, in essence, what you're thinking about, could the other party be using reflexive control on you and should you take that into account when you think about um, decision-making? Fourth step is a feedback loop, and those who know a little bit about cybernetics will get really excited maybe about this because that is one of the core ideas of cybernetic theory, because you need to understand what decision has been made and why this decision has been made. And so, as you probably think about it, so this is pretty close to how machine learning works. You know, if, if you're wrong, you adjust your algorithm and you do it again, and so it becomes a, a continuous uh, learning process. And because I think that this process um, shows very well the origins of this theory in cybernetic theory, I thought I'd just briefly mention the cybernetics and, and the, well, there are many definitions about what cybernetic theory is and we have a couple of people here and on the call who are far better qualified uh, to talk to you about it, which I suggest you do because it's a fascinating topic. But for this specific lecture, I'd like to use the, the definition of Kolmogorov. Uh, this is one of the earlier definitions and it's a definition of uh, Soviet cybernetics which is not necessarily the same as Western cybernetics because there was little communication until the, until the 70s, especially after the um, Second World War. So according to Kolmogorov, cybernetics is the study of systems of any nature, so that could be humans, machines, animals, any system, which are capable of receiving, storing and processing information so as to use it for control. And again, to emphasize, it's good to mention that Soviet cybernetics developed in parallel to how it was developed in the West because there was little communication between the two areas uh, in the time. And so those people who know a lot, a lot about Western cybernetics might disagree a little bit with, with this definition. And that's great. That's, that's a great ground for um, lots of discussion. If you are interested in Soviet cybernetics, the author I just mentioned, uh, Antti Vassara, wrote a really great um, chapter on it. It's the only work I know that is in English about Soviet cybernetics, so I can highly recommend it. Anyway, I think a very important aspect of both cybernetics and thus um, reflects control is that it takes a, a systemic and holistic uh, approach and it, it emphasizes interconnectedness in behaviors of uh, various systems. And what I mean by that is that we're not looking at different systems or situations necessarily as 
separate uh, on its own standing parts. It's more like it's a whole consisting of different systems within systems. And that sounds quite vague, but for understanding of the theory, that's quite um, useful to keep in mind. And again, I want to emphasize about the parallel development of cybernetics and, and uh, Soviet science in general, because I don't want anyone to get the idea that reflexive control is anything completely new, or that is, if anything, it's really very old, and it, I'm, I'm sure it happens uh, in all parts of the world, it's just probably not uh, called that. And also, I think that parts of it will definitely have been developed in, uh, in Western science, but it will be really nice to, to find out where they are in order so we can build this theory in a way that it sort of fits the uh, requirements of what we here in the West at the moment see as a, um, as a requirement for an academic theory. And actually, I'd like you to think about this now um, for when we get to the question and answers, um, that you know, if you have any theories that you think of whilst listening to this, which you think might actually um, fit in quite well with this or might talk to a specific part of the theory, let's talk about it because that would be that would be great um, and this is ongoing research and it'd be really nice to be able to build this theory um, as well as we can and what we don't want to do is to reinvent the wheel and pretend like we are doing something that is completely new. So if we think about the first three steps that I mentioned a couple of slides ago, we see there's quite a bit of analysis um, that is done within these three steps. In Lefebvre's work this, these three steps are all done in what he calls the, uh, the model of the self. And actually, I think you always need to make one model of the self and one model also of the other. Uh, and you really need both because only if you have both you are able to really put the two together and see what that interaction might look like and um, how one might perceive uh, the other. And also you really need it in order to say something about, again, probability that the other is using some sort of um, reflexive thinking on you. So I think the model of the self is a really interesting concept, not because it's, again, not because it's completely new or anything is in there, it's never been thought about before, but I think what this does, it, sort of, it enables you to consciously think about your own perceptions, uh, your own behaviour, uh, your own vulnerabilities, and also how you are being perceived by the other which, as we'll again talk about, might not necessarily be what the actual real perfect information situation is. So yeah, that, that, might, that sort of thing might sound like a, like a basic thing, but it's, it's really not. It's really quite difficult. Because actually, if you look at this and you think again carefully about what uh, Western theories you could link this to, would be a little bit like rational choice theory, but with a uh, very important addition, uh, extra bits. And indeed, before rational choice theory gets dismissed, because it, it lost quite a bit of, uh, of popularity, I think that many are quick to say that people don't make rational choices. And I don't necessarily think that this is correct, especially in light of this theory, because on the basis, uh, I, I think it's potentially not correct, on the basis that rational, in uh, rational choice theory does not necessarily mean that people always choose the best possible, actual possible option, right? It means that people choose the option they think is best for them based on their value set. 
So if you would add sort of an extra layer of perception on that, you could think about making the statement of that people choose the option they perceive is the best one for them based on the information available to them, their, their information bubbles, and also based on their value sets. So after having um, scanned through very many documents, uh, I think, and I'm sorry about this very bad font on the PowerPoint, I think these are the aspects of what should be in the model of the self, and this is very much still in development. So we would have, in a hypothetical situation, we would have information about the information that the other has, the information bubble that they're in, um, their value sets, um, and their value sets would include, for example, their ethical systems, what they think is good, what they think is bad, you know, does the end justify the means, or does it not, very important one. Um, it would include their goals, what is it that they want to achieve, and which timelines are they using to um, in their thought processes. So it would also include their weak spots, where are they likely to be able to, to, for their perception to be changed about what it is they think they want or they need. And lastly, again, the, um, the level of reflection that they think, that you think that others might have on you or that others might think you are doing for them. So I just want to emphasize that in reflexive control, decision-making is the idea that decision-making uh, depends on the information that is received and how it is perceived rather than on what the actual situation is. And this is a, a theory, uh, no, a concept from cybernetic theory. And what this means is that whereas it's, whereas it's acknowledged that there is such a thing as a, as a factual truth based on perfect information, it's absolutely recognised that that is there. There is a, there is a truth out there. Um, it also acknowledges that actually this is not normally the basis on which people base their decisions, because often they don't have all the information and they view this information through a certain lens and that, that changes how they make their decisions. They behave according to the information they have and the information, how the information is perceived. And this doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily the same as what the actual factual uh, perfect information situation looks like. So this is actually not something that is completely unexplored in Western science. You don't see it very often um, because it's, uh, I think, will be very difficult to, to model or to, to measure, but it's not completely unexplored. So one, for example, quite really interesting game theorist called Robert Axelrod. You might have heard of him because he did, uh, he was looking into strategies for cooperation uh, with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And he's, he's also been thought to, um, he's also thought to have been looking at reflexive control, which is, I think, an interesting little, um, little side note. But in his book, uh, Evolution of Cooperation, he describes that the assumption uh, of individuals pursuing self-interest is far less restrictive than it sounds. Because he says, he uses work from um, evolutionary biology, and he cites the work of Robert Trivers, and he says, for, amongst others, he says actually it, it can be proven that there are long-term benefits, for example, for uh, from cooperation uh, or altruism in in evolution, and that actually al altruism 
can definitely be used in your own interest and it sort of takes the altruism out of altruism. Another field in which this concept is explored is cognitive psychology. For example, um, the work of Donald Hoffman, he did a lot of research about uh, also game theoretical simulations about whether in evolution um, perfect information or perceived information would give the best chance of survival and actually in his modelling he used um, perceived situation. Gives us some quite useful pointers for where we can go with this research. So just wanted to give two common misconceptions about what this theory is about. But it's it's actually a little bit harmful and that's because I think if you get these things wrong it makes it seem like the theory is much more narrow and unrealistic and unachievable than it really actually is. Um, and the first one I think is very important is uh, reflex versus reflexive, right? Um, people often think that with reflexive control something needs to happen like it's a reflex, uh, which implies that you would always have exactly the same response to particular stimuli. Like for example, you know, if you touch something hot to you, you pull your hand back. and that is almost a little bit like a scientific law, but it almost means that um, if one thing happens, something else happens too with almost the probability of one, because you don't think about it, it's a, it's a nerve reaction. And so that then means, again, that, there's no, that there would be no thinking involved in reflex control. So if you then, again, look at the literature on reflex control, what you see is that at the beginning, in the 60s and maybe early 70s, people were indeed writing about reflexive control in terms of a, a reflex. And interestingly, when it sort of when reflexive game theory starts developing more and more, we see actually that authors become quite more, uh, quite a bit more happy to include thinking processes in it. So I really don't think that reflexive control is solely about um, making someone reflects on something. I think it really also involves making someone think about something and still making the wrong decision, you just give them the wrong information. That brings me to the, the second misconception, and that's of control. And this theory was first written about in Russian, and in Russian it's called Reflexivne Upravlenie. I apologise for that, my Russian is not good enough to be speaking any of it. But um, importantly, Upravlenie could be translated indeed as control, but it could also be translated as um, management or command of con uh, commanding control or uh, governance. And if you think about, um, if you would only think about reflex control as needing that element of control and thinking that through in terms of uh, probabilities, if you would model that, that, that would make the theory really incredibly narrow to make scientific laws, if not impossible, to make scientific laws about human behaviour uh, in, in such a way. And if you th would then also include a thought process or a reflexive process in that, I think that would be unrealistic to think that you could really speak of control, because control would mean, again, that you would make something happen with a probability of almost one. And then that's yeah, I, I don't think that that's realistic, or at least it's probably not realistic enough uh, for it to, to be used in a wider context. And I think that this is something we should uh, try to do to see if we can learn from this theory and see how we can use it in a, uh, in a practical uh, context. 
because I'm both an analyst and an academic and I like things to actually be used if I work on something. So maybe next time you hear reflex control, maybe have in the, in the back of your head something that says reflexive management or reflexive steering or something like that. Don't focus too much on the control element because that will make it really difficult to do anything with this uh, theory. So important, as I said, to spend a little bit of time talking about what it is we do not know about reflex control because there's quite a lot. As I said before, it's more like a concept rather than a theory. Most important thing is it's completely under theorized and nobody has built a practical model for reflex control uh, and nobody has um, tested it. Especially in the West, there is hardly any literature on reflex control. And there are three notable exceptions. Um, one paper in the 80s, which I can recommend by um, Diane Chotiko, uh, then early work in the 2000s done by Timothy Thomas, um, and a recent paper, which I already mentioned by Antti Vassara. And again, these papers are really very good, but what they are is either uh, explorations of the um, philosophical or psychological backgrounds of the theory, or they are amazing and elaborate uh, literature uh, reviews, which is incredibly useful, but it doesn't really help us in terms of what we can do with it um, practically. So it's all very theoretical. So that brings me to the other thing that we don't know, and I actually don't think that that is incredibly important, but it's, it is important to, to mention it, and that is we do not know if Russia, for example, is officially in a doctrine using reflexive control or indeed if they have actually figured out formally how to how to do this or if it's maybe something that is a bit more uh, subconscious like a like a hunch just something that you just do and there has been a little bit of research on this recently Colonel uh, Han Baumeister from the Dutch army has done quite an extensive study on um, Maskirovka and how that works uh, in terms of strategy, tactical, but also uh, in terms of doctrine. And he says that actually all of this uh, disinformatia, active measures and uh, reflexive control would fall under the umbrella of, of Maskirovka. And I think that he could be right, but if so, I'd really like to add certain components which would mean that actually I think these things might not be completely separate. I think if it is indeed like that, if they are indeed using it in a way that is written down in doctrine, then I think that there's a bit of overlap. So for example, if you would have an active measures operations, there would be aspects of, um, there would be aspects of uh, disinformatia and there would be aspects mm -hmm. of uh, reflexive control. And I think there'd be a bit of overlap there. But, one possibility I'd really like to consider and I'd like you to think about is that maybe the idea of reflexive control, um, the way of thinking, might just be merged into active measures, for example. It might be that there's not, I haven't come across it, but I haven't dived into the Soviet archives yet, uh, might be that there's not sure such a thing as a doctrinally written down active measures. That doesn't mean it's not useful though, because actually if I look at active measures, I think, yeah, there's quite a bit in there that really resonates with this way of thinking. So I think that it doesn't really matter 
uh, in practice, uh, where it sits doctrinally or if it sits anywhere doctrinally. Um, because I see reflex control as a way we could look at risk and, and as an approach to a problem that we have. When I say risk, I mean risk from any uh, foreign government, not you know, not just that of the of the government of uh, of Russia. And I think we could really benefit from properly theorizing this approach. And more specifically, I think there are two concepts of reflexive control which I think could be of um, of high value right now, even if the theory is still a bit uh, more like a, a concept. The first concept uh, I'd love to see if we can develop more formally and practically uh, are the, the models of the self and the other. Because I think, I think models like these can help us think about perceptions and interactions, and I think uh, these can help us define these perceived utility sets. Perceived utility sets is not something I've come across in, in any Western literature. If somebody has, please let me know, because it'd be great to, uh, to learn about it. But I think really that could be explored further. Because if we can get a better, more realistic idea of what these utility sets look like to us and also to our adversaries, that could really help us understand the situation better. And then secondly, if we have indeed very consciously thought about these utility sets and, and how, um, how these things work and how different actions are perceived and, and what is being perceived as good and what is bad and, and what you could then in terms of that expect into what somebody's going to do. This will really help us, I think, to think more strategically about what our vulnerabilities are and, and which vulnerabilities could be used to exploit by others to get what they want uh, and how they could be exploited and in what way, again, that the other would see that as appropriate, you know, would the uh, end justify the means or not, things like that. And I think if you think about it like that, a theory like this could help us uh, identify risks and areas which we might not have previously really considered as risks. And so when I say identifying vulnerabilities, uh, I really also mean vulnerabilities in our threat perception process. And I think it'd be fair to say <laughs> that this is likely to come down to uh, our vulnerabilities in recognising non-kinetic risks, because I'm quite confident that uh, we are much more skilled at identifying kinetic risks, because that is a, a really core component of, of what intelligence does, for example. But non-kinetic risks, uh, we have a little bit of, uh, of uh, difficulty identifying that on a large scale, and, and we have even more difficulty uh, doing something about it. So one thing uh, I think is really important uh, with non-kinetic risks is, for example, our vulnerability to um, economic statecraft. Economic statecraft you can loosely define as the influence that a country can have over another country through, um, through business. And I think if we would use reflexive control um, strategically as a, as a model of thinking about things, it could really help us think more strategically, for example, about, about what is business and what is really conflict, or what is maybe not conflict in itself, but what is going to prepare, what's the preparation uh, for conflict. And I think also, sadly, economic safety graft provide us, especially at the moment, 
with an interesting example of mm. what I think is reflexive control and is not at all mysterious and um, does not involve any deception and is actually really quite transparent because all the data is there in open source. Because in the past few weeks it's become painfully apparent um, how, for example, many of Germany's critical supply chains depends on businesses that are linked to the Kremlin. And for the past few years they've not reduced that dependence, but rather they've increased this. Um, and for the longest time they really believed that that was in their best interest. And you know, it, it would be something that would save money, uh, they could close their nuclear facilities, um, there were opportunities with Nord Stream 2, and there might even been, have been a mention or two about normalising relations with Russia. And it's that, that sounds a bit ridiculous right now, doesn't it? it, it um, and it sounds very logical that that was a risk, but for years it wasn't really something that anyone really was too worried about. Uh, or at least not to the extent that they would do something about it. But it was also not something that they weren't warned about either. They were warned about it often by many people and they made the decision that actually these dealings were their best were their best option. These were the things that were in their best interest. And something like this makes sense if you get the goal completely wrong, right? If you believe that the Kremlin's goal has been for Russia to um, to build a strong economy and to be a reliable trade partner. You know, then it makes sense, but perceptions perceptions matter. So to conclude, I, I think we really need to start seeing conflict as a whole, uh, something integrated, a system. Um, and this means that we have to force ourselves to think more long-term and more strategically about the decisions that we make. And it also means that we have to be realistic about what our vulnerabilities are. For example, you know, are our critical supply chains vulnerable, making us vulnerable? Can our reliance on this, on a specific country for certain critical infrastructure, um, can that be used against us? Can that be used to, to harm us? Or are our supply chains, for example, financing something that can be used against us? And I don't believe that there is such a thing as a um, glass battlefield, but I do think we can and have to become better at understanding it. And I think that reflex control theory can help us get better at this. Thanks. And um, if I just sort of just quickly sum up, um, is you know, what you've set out to do is take a look at building a theoretical framework so we would be absolutely clear about the architecture in which we are going to do the analysis. Um, and it's quite clear there's been attempts to do analysis. Uh, some of those frameworks differ, which has made things very difficult. Some of the definitions differ anyway. So that's slightly problematic. So hats off. I think everyone's applauding you saying, great, keep going at the framework because that's important. One of the really nice insights you gave us, which I think I'm hoping we will go away with, is about risk, right? So um, there seems to be an inherent modelling of vulnerability and risk that needs to be carried out. And I think the, if you think the opposite term of that, to use a Hegelian idea, since that's what mentioned today, um, is, is the opposite of that risk, um, tolerance. So how much leeway or elasticity is there in the systems 
either been used or for us to be resilient against them, mm. that we can start to think about and use. And one of the projects we have here at CCW is a uh, Minerva project. Um, it's, uh, it's been a long-standing five-year project on uh, social fragmentation, physical fragmentation in Europe and in the United States. Some great results produced so far, and it's all based on algorithmic modeling, so um, I'd recommend, if anyone's had a look at that, please do. Um, Under-theorized, question mark. I'm not sure uh, that everyone agrees with you. I think some people are not theory out there, which is great. Um, historians would say, ah, remember what Voltaire said about French admirals. You, know, you need to shoot one or two of them every now and again, protéger les autres, right? To, to make sure everyone goes in, back into line. I mean, that is a form of reflexive control. So we should you know, be mindful of historians. Yeah. Instinct was mentioned. You know, I think that's actually right. Market economics came in yes. at the end, and I think this, you know, Shep's point absolutely bang on. Um, these are really, really important. And lots of interesting questions about threat perception, which we know is hugely important. And we can make some really wrong judgments when we misperceive a threat by starting investing huge amounts of sums of money into something which is not actually that important. I mean, that's strategy right there. So we need to kind of be very careful uh, what we're doing. But I love the mention of supply chain dependencies. Um, there's lots of theoretical work we'll throw at you, of course, if you're further studies. Um, but one other question to go away with here is, if there was an ethical version of what you're framing, could we apply it to peace building? Could we take manufacturers and hostile actors and do something on their perception on their mind, which draws them in to making better judgments of behaviors and decisions, which mean they lay down their arms? And right now, ladies and gentlemen, we need it. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs>